Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Koblenz is a small town in West Germany. It's a place where a lot of river cruises stop off, the kind that you see advertised on daytime TV, I guess you would say targeted at retirees. By a strange quirk, I actually found myself living there for six months a few years ago, and I can say firsthand that not much happens there. The pace is slow, tourists come and go. The thing that is special about it, and it's in the name, which comes from the word confluence, is that it's where the Rhine and the Mosul rivers meet, flowing into each other at a single point before joining up for their final stretch to the North Sea. And it's here, inside a rather unassuming red brick courthouse, next to Strasse den Menschenrechte, the street of human rights, that a historic trial has been running for nearly two years with teams of lawyers, victims, legal observers and five German judges. A case examining the gravest of charges, crimes against humanity, and against a man, a Syrian, called Anwar R. There is no doubt that the people were starved, were beaten, were tortured. This place was truly a, a place of horror. I do nothing else in my life but seeking an answer for this question. Is my dad alive? I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. In this episode, The German People versus Anwar R. We're in Syria's capital, Damascus, on a busy street, Baghdad Street, in the Al Hatib neighborhood sits Branch 251. Behind its exterior walls are two buildings separated by a courtyard. Downstairs, in the basement, is the prison, the cells and most of the interrogation rooms. Men and women are held separately, but everywhere there is squalor. This is a place of torture. Since well before the revolution in Syria began in 2011, when peaceful protesters took to the streets to demand change as part of the Arab Spring, Branch 251 has been a tool of the Syrian regime to inflict pain. And it's not unique. Branch 251 is part of an industrial-scale network of interrogation facilities, sometimes described as black holes, places where civilians are taken and disappear. My name is Wafa Ali Mustafa. I'm a Syrian journalist and activist. I've been in Berlin, Germany for the past almost six years. At first glance, Wafa appears to live a fairly normal life. 
She's in her early 30s. She shares a flat with two housemates in Berlin. Her bedroom wall is covered with photos of things and people that she loves. But one face features more than others. Pictures of a man in his 50s. I mean, my dad is, has always been a very caring dad in his own way. My dad was quite strict, I would say, you know, like he doesn't show his emotions in a very expressive way. But obviously, yes, we had a we had a very, I would say, I would call it a special relationship. Wafa's dad is an outspoken critic of Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria. He dreams of a free country. He dreams of Assad being ousted like Hosni Mubarak was in Egypt. He welcomed the revolution in 2011. Everyone knew my dad. He was, you know, he got arrested even before the revolution. He was also detained at the beginning of the revolution. So it was, it was quite difficult for him to move around and do things. Wafa grew up with her dad, her mum and her two sisters in a place called Masyaf, an ancient city in northwest Syria. It's a striking place, a huge medieval fortress looms over it, and it was once used as a location in the video game Assassin's Creed. When the revolution started... The Syrian government responded to the protests with absolute violence. And by June 2012, Syria was officially in a state of civil war. People like Wafa's dad, who were known to criticise Assad's government, they were now in grave danger. In a hotel room in Berlin where I went to meet her, she sort of levitated off the sofa when she talked about him, almost physically lifted by her memories of him. And as we talked, we propped up an A4-sized picture of him that she'd brought with her, up against a water bottle on the table, so that he was present. She told me that when the protests began, to her great surprise, her parents let her join. You know, many people wanted to go to protest and stuff, but their families won't let them. And then my friends, at some point, I remember like a couple of people asked me like, how come that you're, like, your father and mother like don't, don't even tell you that you should not? People were getting killed, obviously. So there is a valid reason. And I remember I asked myself once, don't you love me? Are you, aren't you like scared for me? You know, something would happen. I would, I might get arrested or killed. And I think, I mean, I remember clearly he said that, of course I do, but this doesn't mean that I, I can, or I will allow myself to tell you that you should not do that. But if you do it, you take responsibility and you are fully aware of the consequences, you might get arrested, you might get killed. The thing about Masyaf is that it's really tiny, just 22,000 people live there. And so Ali Mustafa thought it would be safer for him to hide in the noise of Damascus, but also he could be of more use there. For a time, Wafa and her dad were living together in an apartment, just the two of them. He was different. The, the one thing that I kept, that I kept and I keep thinking about is that how crazy is the fact that someone could actually like love and live life to its limits, but at the same time be very willing to sacrifice their lives for what they believe in? And I mean, I, I knew and I know that heroes are like this, 
people, heroes I read about in books, in novels, and we see in films. To me, my dad is the the life example of this. I mean, my dad was 20 when he just, you know, 20. He just left Syria to Lebanon to fight against the, the war of the Israeli occupation on Lebanon in the uh, 82. This is, this is, you know, this is something you cannot, you can, this is not like a far history and this is not something, you know, like that happened to someone else. This is my father. And the thing is, when I interviewed Wafa, I thought that she would be one person among many that could help me understand the connection between Branch 251 and a German courtroom. And I thought that this was really a courtroom drama about the very principles of human rights and justice. But when I spent time with her, and I think you can hear it when she speaks, that all shifted. Because to speak to Wafa is to be hit by a force that is as impressive as it is utterly painful. I realised, of course, that the story that I need to tell you is not about a hunt for a war criminal, although we'll get to that. It is, at its core, about love between a father and his daughter and about how that love took Wafa to Koblenz to sit outside a courtroom near Strasse, the Menschenrechte, holding a picture of him. By the summer of 2013, the revolution in Syria was two years old. The world knew about the killing of protesters, about torture, about mass suppression. That year, the UN confirmed the worst chemical attack in a quarter of a century by the regime using sarin gas. And that summer, the UK Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, narrowly lost a vote that would have taken military action against Bashar al-Assad. And that vote in the UK Parliament left President Barack Obama isolated and without support. Assad had stepped over Obama's red line in using deadly chemicals to attack civilians, and yet nothing happened. Wafa, meanwhile, was 23, and she was struggling. A good friend of hers had been killed in a bombing, and she collapsed. Mentally, physically, she shut down. You know, at that point also, like, I refused to engage in any form of life. Her dad was looking after her, literally feeding her, taking her to the toilet, she said. And uh, my dad had to walk me to the bathroom and... Caring for her in the most basic, most intimate way that a parent can care for their child. After a few months, he pleaded with her to go to Lebanon with him so that they could say goodbye to her younger sister, who was travelling to the US for a workshop. And I remember that he said that this is the first and the last time I'll ask you for anything. Just come come with us. You don't have to go out. You don't have to see anyone. Let's just sp- spend this like one day together and then tomorrow we come back to Syria. But we actually spend that like one, you know, not even a day. It's it's less. And then next day, we, my sister went to the, U- to the U.S. and we came back. And we took the, this picture. This actually my, my sister took. And <clears throat> you should see me. I, I look very sad and very tired. But yeah, I mean, I think we, we came back. And I think it was the point where my dad said, okay, I, I just cannot see you like this anymore. I want you to do one thing. I want you to go to Masyaf, to my um, hometown, and see a doctor. And I will only let you come back to Damascus if you go and see a doctor because it has been three months and that's that's enough. 
So I said, okay. So I went with my sister, my youngest sister, to Masyaf. And I think like a day or two later, my dad called my mom and said, you know, we've been separated for a couple of months. Why don't you come to Damascus? We spend, you know, some time together alone. And obviously my dad convinced her. And I mean, I remember we, we like my sisters and I, you know, were like, were like telling people that my mom is going to Damascus to have this new honeymoon and everything. <laughs> and like, this is something my dad didn't really, didn't really appreciate. And he was like, stop it. And my mom, you know, she like, um, she prepared my dad like favorite food and his clothes and everything. And she went there and. Yeah, I mean, on on the way, like 15 minutes before she arrived, she called my dad and uh, she said, you know, I need 15 to be there and I need you to come downstairs to help me with uh, what, I ha- what I have. And he told her that everything is perfect. He, he's, he cleaned the house and he's just waiting for her. And yeah, 15 minutes later, my mom called uh, my dad and he didn't respond. And then she called me and then she said, can you call him on the landline? So I did and he did not respond. And I think there was like a moment of silence where both of us realized that it happened. A neighbor who knew Wafa's mother, who recognized her standing on the street, came outside. And then our neighbor saw my mom and asked her, like, are you waiting for your husband? And my mom said yes. And then she said, just a bit earlier, a group of armed men attacked your place. And and they went downstairs with your husband and another person. That other person was my dad's best friend. On the 2nd of July 2013, aged 51, Ali Mustafa disappeared. He was taken with his best friend, a man who later, Wafa learned, had been killed in one of Syria's detention centres. Fortunately, Hussam's family was told a couple of years earlier that, that he died. Obviously, that meant that he was killed under torture in a security branch, but, but we did not hear from my dad. How many days is it now? Today is 3,135 3,135 days. So that makes eight years, six months, and 29 days. Today. Today. The Assad family has run Syria for decades. Before Bashar, it was Hafez al-Assad. And it was under his three-decade rule that the Syrian regime really developed a taste for detention centers. This is Anwar al-Banni. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I am uh, Anwar Albuni, Syrian lawyer from uh, uh, Syria. He's a Syrian human rights lawyer, and on a Zoom call from Germany, he speaks with energy and force, and he's casually puffing on a vape that's sending this thick grey smoke across the screen. And he's telling us about his life through a translator, how back in the 1980s he helped build the now notorious Sednaya prison, initially meant to be a humane jail. This is one of the world's most notorious prisons. There are almost no pictures of its exterior and none from inside. And 
His brothers, it turns out, were some of its first residents. In fact, his family have spent collectively more than 70 years in prison. Anwar himself accounts for five of those years. His stint started in 2006, when his work against the regime, representing people as a human rights lawyer, caught up with him. I was kidnapped off the street, like what happens in Chicago. I was leaving my house to get in my car that was parked on the side of the road. Suddenly, a rushing car stopped at me. Its doors were opened and two people got out. He was forced into a car and driven away, just like in the Hollywood movies, he says. I was shouting, Who are you? What happened? Where are you taking me? And I heard a voice from the front seat saying, You don't know what you did? You are a murderer, a predator and a rapist. You are about to see what will happen to you, you criminal. I continued yelling, I didn't do anything. After that, I started thinking, where is the car going? When we entered the building, they locked me in a cell, and only then did they remove my blindfold. He was taken to a room. A voice asked, tell me, what is the problem with human rights in Syria? I answered him saying, the human rights situation is excellent. And there is no clearer proof than me standing before you today in this situation. Anwar al-Banni had been arrested by a man called Anwar Raslan, a man who became the chief interrogator at Branch 251, Lieutenant Colonel Anwar Raslan. Following the uprising in 2011, things deteriorated rapidly in Syria. Beyond Branch 251, beyond Damascus, the regime was obliterating the country. Many times I was close to death. I experienced uh, people suffering, people bleeding. I saw a lot of kids without heads. I saw a lot of children without arms. Links. Uh, it was doomsday for everyone. This is Ismail, who works for the White Helmets, an organization helping civilians caught in the civil war. He's currently in northwest Syria. This incident took place in uh, 2014 when uh, a chopper uh, dropped a bar bomb uh, on a crowded street, uh, which was the exit or the way or the main road to get out of Aleppo city. People were crowded and uh, trying to escape, flee from Aleppo. When the power bomb hit the road, when I arrived and saw, saw them in that situation, a mother holding and trying to hold her baby to protect him. Uh, and they were burned completely, you know. This picture is still haunting me. The official and low estimate suggests 350,000 civilians have been killed by the Syrian regime, and more than 6.5 million Syrians have fled the country. And Anwar al-Banni is one of them. He knew it was only a matter of time before the Syrian police tracked him down, caught him and detained him. And so he escaped in 2014. 
It is a matter of life and death. The situation involves killing. Nobody gets into prison and leaves it alive. Right then, I decided that I should leave the country. He kicked into action straight away, making sure that his family got out of the country first. I had to send off my wife and kids before me. They would have taken them hostages if I had left first. Only once they were safely out, he changed his appearance, put in blue contact lenses, dyed his hair blonde, and jumped in a car with his friend to go to a meeting point. Not for the first time, his story sounds like the stuff of films. I took an identity to cross the borders from Sham to the Lebanese borders. There were about six checkpoints. I traveled with a friend of mine and her husband. She was driving. They left at six in the early evening with the sunlight fading. He allowed the smugglers to think that he was a military defector. If they knew that they were smuggling a famous human rights lawyer, the price would have been much higher. Of course, he took a lot of money. He just didn't know who he was smuggling. In this situation, $2,000 would be enough. If he had known it was Anwar al-Bunni, he would have turned me in for $10,000. Once in Beirut, he was able to get a visa to fly to Germany. And by the end of 2014, Anwar al-Bunni was one of around 120,000 Syrians living in Germany. The following year, Angela Merkel made her now famous speech with three utterly transformative words. Wir schaffen das. Wir schaffen das. We can do this. Wir schaffen das und wo uns etwas im Wege steht, muss es überwunden werden. The German Chancellor was opening the door. An act of domestic policy that would arguably reshape the German political landscape and come to define Merkel's chancellorship. And it's where these three crucial people to our story Anwar al-Banni, Wafa Ali Mustafa. Uh, the group was able to come to Germany under some kind of protection. And Colonel Anwar Raslan, regime interrogator, torturer. It's where they all converge, figuratively, but also literally, on the streets of Berlin. I left my apartment heading for the outside gate of the complex and on the way I met someone with his wife. I knew the person, but I couldn't remember who he was. My wife was with me. I told her I knew the guy. I didn't remember who he was. It seemed like a familiar face. In 2012, Anwar Rassan had left Branch 251, defected from the regime, and he joined the opposition. And like thousands of others, he went to Germany and claimed political asylum. And now, thousands of miles away, away from their first brutal encounter, Anwar al-Banni found himself living in a refugee complex on the outskirts of Berlin, alongside his former interrogator. Two weeks later, I was with some friends of ours who knew who arrested me. Me right then, I remember that person I saw. It was Anwar Raslan. You know, it's not a personal matter to me. He is not my rival, not my enemy. There are many people like him in the system. Many people like him have hurt people. He wasn't my enemy, or else half of the Syrian people would be my enemies. It's a remarkable moment. But Anwar al-Bani didn't do anything about it at the time. He didn't go to the police. Something else happened. 
He went to the police and he told them everything. Police were astonished as to why he was there. Anwar Raslan feared that he was being followed. He believed that Syrian intelligence was on his tail, and so he went to the police himself. And when they began looking into Anwar Raslan's story, they began to come across victims of his. In 2019, Anwar Raslan was arrested by German police, and Germany has a special war crimes unit tasked with chasing these kinds of cases. German prosecutors contacted Anwar al-Bani. He was to be the trusted link to Syrian witnesses, those who would be willing to come forward and testify against Anwar Raslan. And you might think at this point, well, why? Why does the German state care? These were not crimes committed on German soil against German nationals. Well, it turns out the German state really did care and German federal prosecutors really did care. They care so much that they decide to put Anwar Raslan on trial. In a historic case, the first anywhere in the world prosecuting a senior Syrian regime figure for crimes against humanity. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Philippe Sands. I teach international law at University College London, and I am a barrister at Matrix Chambers, done many cases about crimes against humanity and genocide across the world. It's the principle of universal jurisdiction that underpins the case against Anwar Raslan. It allows a domestic court, in this case a German one, to try someone for crimes that have happened in a different country. And it's based really on the idea that some crimes are just too serious to be left to national governments alone. And there is, of course, some historical symmetry here because universal jurisdiction is an idea that really took hold in the aftermath of the Second World War, after the darkest period in modern European history. And so by the early part of the 20th century, that had already begun to be established as a basis for the idea that certain human actions were so egregious and horrendous that the courts of any country in the world could in principle exercise their jurisdiction, criminal but perhaps also civil, over actions of that kind. So by the time of 1945 and in the years that followed, universal jurisdiction was extended to war crimes in certain contexts, crime, that's, that's to say crimes committed in the context of war and armed conflict, to crimes against humanity, the destruction of individuals, and the crime of genocide, the destruction of groups. 
At the Palace of Justice in Nuremberg, Nazi war criminals were pursued as part of a military tribunal. Now, von Ribbentrop. Are you telling the tribunal on your oath that you knew nothing about the effect of military pressure on Austria? I wish to stress again that I knew nothing about military measures. When international criminal justice entered the international legal scene, Germany was not a driving actor. Uh, Germany was the accused. This is Klaus Kress, a distinguished law professor at the University of Cologne. German crimes were the subject matter when the actual breakthrough happened in Nuremberg. It was, of course, a trial dealing with uh, those unprecedented, horrific crimes committed in the name of Germany. Nuremberg laid the foundations. It took another 50 years for the principle to become enshrined in international law. And Philippe Sands, as a young lawyer in his 30s, was at the heart of it. If you look at the statute of the International Criminal Court and read the preamble, you will find a line in it which expresses the view that it is the duty of every state to investigate acts that amount to international criminality. I actually drafted that line with my friend and colleague, Andrew Clapham. We drafted the preamble in Rome in 1998. They'd, no one changed a line of what we wrote. It all, it all passed. It was, I mean, it, I don't think it reflects well on the rigour of the international legislative system that a couple of teenagers from London and Geneva can engage in such activity and change the world. That preamble formed part of what is called the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. It set the legal parameters for universal jurisdiction. And in Germany, Klaus went about putting Philippe's line into practice. Klaus spent a year and a half trying to enshrine this principle within German law. The draft code then went to the Bundestag. It was spectacular to see that the German parliament, by unanimity, adopted this code and one important parliamentarian, um, he rose during the debate and said, well, we had a number of controversies uh, on, on a number of issues, but not on this one. On Germany's contribution to the establishment of a global system trying to deal with the issue of impunity, there is a consensus in this house. And that, of course, was a wonderful basis to start from. Dr. Peter Frank, Germany's current chief prosecutor, told Philippe Sands in a rare interview a few years ago that it is precisely because of Germany's history that it should now be setting precedent in the pursuit of war criminals. But it's one thing to try someone. It's another thing to build a case strong enough to convict them. It's the 23rd of April, 2020. In Europe, the first wave of COVID has hit. And in Koblenz, in Western Germany, where the two rivers meet, a man steps into a courtroom, kitted out already in Perspex panels, and German justice tries to rule on Syrian injustice. It's a disarmingly sunny, warm day for April. And because of the pandemic, only a few people are allowed inside. The trial gets started at 10 a.m., my name is Whitney Machinano Sakare, and I'm an assistant counsel with the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch. The program has been 
monitoring the trial in Koblenz uh, from the beginning. One of the people who attended the trial in the later hearings when it moved to the higher regional court was Whitney Martina. Oh, something that really struck me was that on the on the left side of the courtroom, you can see like this like two words on the on the wall, um, fiat justitia, which is Latin for you know do justice or justice should be done. Whitney was watching Anwar Raslan. From photographs, he appears thin with a thick grey moustache and a really distinctive birthmark under his left eye. Whitney told me that he rarely showed emotion. He was calm. He took notes. He looked around. He watched the public gallery. And about a month into the trial, Wafa arrives. She travels from Berlin to Koblenz because she knows this is an important moment. All this time, she's been waiting, obsessed by her own admission, with trying to find her dad, who remains lost somewhere between life and death. And she's stuck in her own cycle of torture. She doesn't know if he's been inside Branch 251, but it's likely that he's being held, or he has been held, somewhere like it. And I'm battling with my tenses here because I don't know which one to use. Wafa talks about her dad, Ali, in the present tense, and so I will too. She goes to the courtroom, she told me, because she wants simply for her dad to be a part of it. I wanted to go there to give my dad the chance to be part of the moment. And as I said, I mean, I do things in this, like, you know, I just, it it makes me feel better. Inside the courtroom, in a room which used to be a library and is still lined with books, evidence of torture, of mass killings, of sexual violence, rape, electrocution, is all being poured over being tested and cross-examined by prosecutors. Human Rights Watch shared extensive trial notes with me that had been taken by lawyers at the legal firm Clifford Chance. And a lot of it, I have to say, I found almost unreadable. I can't imagine what it was like in court filled with survivors listening to this. And I was able to read that, for example, on day 41 of the hearings, Marcus Rothschild, an esteemed forensic expert who's examined mass graves in Bosnia and Kosovo in the late 90s, gave evidence. And he was there to give a PowerPoint presentation, presenting his analysis of the Caesar files, 53,000 photographs taken by a military photographer codenamed Caesar that had been smuggled out of Syria in 2014. And these images showing the systematic killing of an estimated 11,000 detainees were shown to the court. Detainees, some of whom had been through Branch 251. And it revealed a scale of violence that I could not comprehend. And Anwar Albani also gave evidence. I stayed for two days testifying about the whole security system. I told them everything. Everything we had talked about here is part of the testimony. They know that this branch arrested me and that Anwar Raslan is the one who did it. The prosecutor called through ECCHR and took my testimony. He also asked me about other victims of the branch. I know them because I defended them when they were in prison. I was their lawyer. And there were these moments of absurdity, too. In one document, it reads... The day is taken up by the testimony of a single witness referred to as Witness Z. In order to conceal his identity, he's wearing a wig and a fake beard. The attendees seem to be shocked that someone in such danger would have such an unprofessional disguise. 
I couldn't get an answer on why a fake beard made an appearance, but it did. Waffer, meanwhile, had been sitting outside the courtroom for some of the days of the trial, and she was finding the whole experience deeply complicated. On the one hand, she was pleased. This was a man who was being held accountable for his crimes. Nine of his victims were joint plaintiffs in the case, and they could see their torturer in the dock. On the other hand, it was an intensely uncomfortable experience. She feared that she was losing sight of her dad, that he was becoming just an abstract part of an abstract crime that was too big to remember the individuals within it. And when she speaks, she returns again and again to a feeling of dislocation and of unreality. I just, I just realized that I saw this bigger picture of what they call Sirius disappeared and somehow my dad's picture you know it, as if they be, they all became one picture they were not individuals anymore they just formed like a bigger very painful picture and it felt like my dad wasn't my dad anymore he just became part of this far very painful picture after 110 gruelling days in court, the judges reached a verdict. It's the 13th of January, 2022, and there's a queue outside the courtroom since 3am. There's a video that's taken from inside the room just before the verdict is handed down, and the room is packed. Anwar Raslan arrives in a green padded coat, and he confers with his lawyers. Finally, the presiding judge announces. The following verdict is handed down in the name of the people. The defendant is sentenced to life imprisonment for crimes against humanity in the form of killing, torture, serious deprivation of liberty, rape and sexual assault in combination with murder in 27 cases, dangerous bodily harm in 25 cases, particularly serious rape, sexual assault in two cases, deprivation of liberty lasting more than one week in 14 cases, taking of hostages in two cases, and sexual abuse of prisoners in three cases. And the trial notes say, the Syrians outside the courtroom expressed satisfaction with this verdict, but the reaction was very subdued. It seemed clear to all that, in context, this was a very small step. They all looked simply exhausted. In Europe, the case, I would say, made modest headlines. The former officer Anwar Raslan was accused of overseeing a detention centre where prosecutors said at least 4,000 people were tortured and nearly 60 were killed. He was sentenced to life in prison. In Syria, it mattered. I asked Ismail of the White Helmets about the reaction back home. This was one of the good news for the city or the seniors, even for me, even for the families, even for the families in the who live in regime-controlled areas. Everyone, every every Syrian family were happy by this news that Anwar Raslan was found guilty for killing and torturing people. All the people talked about it. 
Anwar Raslan has appealed the verdict, but already in Frankfurt, another trial is underway against a Syrian doctor who faces 18 charges of torture and one of murder by lethal injection. And last year, an Iraqi member of the Islamic State was found guilty of genocide in a Frankfurt court. Lawyers proved, among other crimes, that the man had enslaved a five-year-old in 2015, chaining her up and leaving her to die of thirst. It's the first conviction for genocide against the Yazidis. And so Germany is sending a very clear message. We are going to pursue crimes against humanity. There are more cases coming, lawyers told me. But is this justice? I couldn't help but hear Waffer's fury and think that these cases are individual and specific. And there's a divergence, it seems, between holding one or two or ten men accountable and justice. And it's a question that I put to Philippe Sands. For me, accountability defines a process whereby a particular individual is subject to some sort of process to determine their responsibility for having been involved in a particular act. Justice is a much broader concept. I mean, it's a legal concept, it's a philosophical concept, it's a moral concept, it's a political concept. It means all things to all people. Accountability is part of any system of justice in the sense of determining the question, has justice been done? Justice may have been done in the case of one individual, but there remain hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands or more of others who have not been caught by a formalised system uh, of justice, and hence justice in the round remains not done. But in one case, there has been accountability, and emblematically, that is important, I think. I think it's very important for victims. I mean, it, it is understandably not going to be enough to deal with their senses of grievance and hurt and and pain and horror. But it's the beginning and it's better than nothing. These concepts, he said, are fluid. And I think life is not binary. It's not either or. Justice and accountability are sort of like rivers that flow into and out of each other. And when he said this, I thought, right, that's it. It's justice and accountability, two rivers meeting, in a case held in Koblenz at the confluence of two rivers where the enormity of the war crimes in Syria have been distilled into the actions of one man who has been held to account. But it's not time to celebrate. And Waffa in that hotel room in Berlin with me articulated this with real fury. I was very disappointed, especially on the day of the verdict, because of the amount of celebration. And I understand where it comes from. But there are still hundreds of thousands inside detention centers. And there are still millions of Syrians like me waiting for an answer. The trial is very important, but if it's not used politically to stop the massacre in Syria, then what is the point? And this is that was my question on the day of the verdict. I had high hopes at the beginning of the trial that it will definitely push Syria's case on a political level a step forward. That did not happen. Two years Two years 
Nothing has changed. We have not seen any updates or changes on the way the international community has been addressing Syria. Nothing. I mean, I'm I'm really angry because am I expected just to accept it and just you know am I, like are am I am I that naive? Do they expect me to just you know give up on on my dad's right to be saved? For this crazy celebration of what they call justice, well, this is not justice for Syria. This is not. This is just a first step. We're not even close to justice. I mean, uh, how? I mean, this. To be honest, I find it. I find find it very condescending. Like, how dare you saying that this is justice? We are achieving justice for. No, you are not, and I doubt that there is a single Syrian who sees this as the justice. It's a step, obviously. It's an attempt, obviously. Is it enough? No. What is missing? A lot is missing. Her torture continues. And to be honest, it left me pretty much speechless. And I mean, in my case, in in, in our case, we paid more than you can imagine for lawyers, for uh, people from the regime, for people who said they have connections with people from the regime, war merchants. It, 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 I mean, it came to the point where they started coming to us to say, oh, we know you have someone in the regime's uh, prisons and we can ask for, uh, we can ask about, we can get you information if you give us this and this and this. And the point is that you can, you can never say no. In many cases, we knew that they were lying. But you can you can never say no. No to what? I mean, it's, you know, I mean, guilt will just eat you out. You cannot. And it's crazy. And I mean, even like, you know, fine. And this is something is not talked about. Even like logistically, financially, it's draining. It's, I know people who sold their houses to pay for 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 someone to get them information and it's even worse because you don't get the truth they don't tell you the truth after our interview finished wafa and i said our goodbyes it had been a long interview intense and she had places to be and a few minutes after she'd gone i realized that she'd left her a4 picture of her dad so i texted her and i said wafa you left the picture can i find you and maybe return it to you tomorrow And she replied that if I wanted, I could keep it. And I said to her, I'll keep it. And while I'm writing the podcast, I'll keep it beside me. And that's what I did. Ali Mustafa will turn 60 this year and remains missing. More than 100,000 Syrians remain forcibly disappeared. Bashar al-Assad remains in power. Syria has fallen out of the headlines. Wafa remains searching for her beloved dad, Justice for Syria remains far away. This episode was written and reported by me, Basha Cummings, and my colleague Xavier Greenwood. It was produced by Matt Russell with sound design by Tom Birchall. It was made with the support of Balkis Jarrah, Mayfong, and Human Rights Watch. And special thanks to Jumana Saif of the ECCHR, who was incredibly generous with her time. To read more about Human Rights Watch's work on international justice, go to hrw.org.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you want to support our journalism and you'd like to play a part in a newsroom where these stories really matter, you can join us as a member. Members get access to our editorial meetings, what we call think-ins, to our long reads and our data journalism and our app and loads of other stuff. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50, that's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thanks, and I'll see you next week. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.